Turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis 3. We will spend time this morning considering the strategy of our ultimate opponent. The forces of evil that are arrayed against us. In Genesis chapter 3, Genesis is the book of beginnings, the beginning of creation, and then over the last couple of weeks, the fall, and then the plan of redemption, and ultimately, consummation. This is the story of the Bible, and it all begins, all of it begins in Genesis. And the question that Genesis is really trying to answer is, what became of this good creator that's described in chapters 1 and 2? What became of this good creator's good world? How did it become so broken? How did it become so ugly? How did it come to have so much pain? What became of creation? In this morning's text, we find instruction and insight into the strategies of the one who caused all of this and who is still active in this world. Last week's takeaway was to avoid deception, take God at his word. To avoid deception, we should take God at his word. The reason that's important is Corinthians 2, remember, we read this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. But I wonder, sometimes perhaps we are. If not ignorant, sometimes we're forgetful. And when we are forgetful or when we are ignorant, when we remain ignorant, we will be outwitted by Satan. And those are the questions that we each need to ask today as we think about how temptation works. Deception and temptation, it all begins not with an argument, but rather with a question, with suggestions. Remember that from last week? Not a blatant argument, not a blatant accusation, or even a blatant command, but rather, let's question God's word. And the evil one, the tempter, remember, infusing and behind the physical form of a serpent or a snake, the evil one dismisses the danger that God had clearly declared and promotes the supposed benefits of disobedience. And in doing so, suggested implicitly, that Eve not take God at his word, that she do what she felt was right, and in doing so, disobey the Creator. You know, it's interesting, if you think about this, that two of God's best gifts are used by the one to torment and to tempt and to deceive his creation. One of the gifts is language. Language is one of God's best gifts. God speaks the universe into existence. We're able to communicate with one another. We have the Word of God all in language that can be understood. Language is one of God's best gifts, but Satan twists it and perverts it. The other one of God's good gifts is reason. If this happens, what? If that happens, what? What ultimate meaning does this have? All of this is rooted in reason. And Satan comes and he uses this wonderful gift. He uses, as he does all of God's gifts, he uses this good gift of God to pervert and twist God's good intention and good creation. So all of this is, it's not pitched as outright rebellion, remember? Instead, it's, it's pitched as a pursuit for truth, for wisdom, for knowledge, for significance. One of the old preachers said it this way, 
our first parents who knew so much did not know this, they knew enough. Our first parents who knew so much did not know this, that they already knew enough. And Eve is deceived into adopting her own plan of action, not forced by the evil one, but deceived into making her own choices to be her, watch this, to be her own master. Adam and Eve were free in relation to the Creator, yet they fell into judgment and bondage through their choice. And remember, the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. And thus, where we are today. And there are very real differences between our first parents and us today, yet what we'll see today is how temptation works. How temptation leverages our pride and our desire to do it our way. How temptation leverages that to bring us to embrace deception and unbelief. Remember, the focus this morning is we must not be ignorant of the evil one's devices. So let me show you, first of all, from verse 6 in Genesis 3. Let me talk to you briefly about the tempter's success with Eve. The success that the tempter had with Eve. There were three approaches that manifest in Eve's thought process and desire and decision. Notice, first of all, in verse 6, the Bible is very clear. So that when the woman saw that the tree was, first of all, what? Good for food. Good for food bodily appetite. By the way, in and of itself, a legitimate need. Even before the fall, evidently, there was something built into creation where sustenance and nourishment was important. But the thing is this, Adam and Eve were more than satisfied. They had an abundance of creative glory. All the trees, they had anything they could possibly want. But nevertheless, she saw this forbidden tree and said, that's a fruit that would be good for food. And who could argue with that? Because food is necessary. You see how this is a rationalization that is ultimately practical? This is pragmatism on display. It's like, I'm hungry, the tree is here. What could be wrong? This has to do with what we call, be careful here, what we call our needs. What we say are needs, and how flexible that term can be used to satisfy not so much need, but what, what we want. Good for food. It also says in verse 6, do you see it? That it was a delight to the eyes. It was a delight to the eyes. Evidently, it was beautiful. We don't know if it was unusually beautiful. We don't know that perhaps it was more beautiful than any of the other trees. There's no indication of that. Everything was very good. Everything put God's glory and His creative power on display. But you see, this is a rationalization of beauty. This is an emotional response. It's not just that fruit would be good for me to eat to satisfy my physical desire, but also it's so beautiful. It, it, it's to be desired. It's, it, it's something that is a delight to the eyes. Why would God withhold beauty from me? was a rationalization of aesthetics. A rationalization which you can even take and you can spiritualize that you're honoring the Creator. Because after all, God made this and it's so beautiful. So why shouldn't I partake? We don't know that that's what she thought or said. But it's very likely implied here. 
of the likes of guys. But there's a whole other level. Because it also says, not only did she see that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, but also that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, to make one wise. You see, appropriate knowledge, it comes in God's time and in God's way. God was not keeping knowledge from them. The Creator was keeping knowledge for them. This evidently is an issue of significance. It's an issue that addresses the real identity of who we are, in a sense, our spiritual existence. And she was led to believe that if she would exercise her autonomy, she would become like God. She would know, finally, all things. She would know good. She would know evil. She saw no harm. Why would God withhold this from her? This is the consistent temptation and deception that God is holding out on you. Good for food, the light of the eyes, to make one wise. And I think it's important for us to just remember that none of these in and of themselves are inherently wrong. It's good to have your physical needs met. God created beauty to be enjoyed. And knowledge in and of itself is a good thing, not a bad thing. Eating good food, enjoying experiencing beauty and delight or desiring wisdom, all of these are good, but there's the danger in it. Because the danger is making autonomous decisions, making decisions as though we are God and He is not. That's the issue. And that's what she does. Look at the end of the verse. She took up its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Each of them, Adam and Eve, made a free choice. Hers in deception, his in willful rebellion. And this is the result. Listen carefully to it. This is the result of the deadly assumption that God's word is subject to our own judgment. The deadly assumption that God's word is subject to your opinion. That God's word is interpreted based on what you desire. It's dead. And notice how quickly it happens. She took and ate, gave some to Adam, and he ate. Once we embrace a desire in our hearts, it's difficult to stop. Again, Matthew Henry said, the way of sin is downhill. Its effects are viral, and we'll unpack those next week. So here we see, what do we see? We see disbelief, we see pride and autonomy, we see theft because it wasn't hers to take. We see ambition, we see envy, we see indulgence, all in the first sin. And here rebellion leads to unbelief that is guilty, it is culpable. Theologians and uh, coffee shop seminarians that's where seminarians who don't have anything better to do but argue over arcane issues. They sit around the coffee shop and they argue. And uh, there's always been arguments about where did the sin really happen? Because clearly she desired something that was forbidden. So did the sin happen when she listened to the serpent? Or when she desired the forbidden fruit? Or when she ate it? And the text isn't really clear because the text doesn't parse out specifics in the way that perhaps we sometimes 
as coffee shop seminarians would like it to be explained. But what is clear is this from the rest of Scripture, we'll see before we're through this morning, that when you willfully embrace a temptation and yield your desire to it, you've already sinned. You say, well, I didn't do it. But according to Scripture, embracing an illegitimate desire is sin in and of itself. So here we have Satan's first great apparent success. But that's not the end of the story. We all know that. It's Genesis 3, after all, right? There's another encounter that's very similar. And go with me in your Bibles to Matthew 4. And let me show you the tempter as he interacts with the second Adam. The one who is called the second Adam. The first Adam failed and yielded. But what about the second Adam? After showing you the tempter's success with Eve, let me show you the tempter's failure with Jesus. Because the tempter tried the same kinds of strategies, similar strategies, with Jesus, the Son of God, the human God-man, as it were, and yet the tempter failed in Matthew chapter 4. This is after Jesus' baptism. And here's what's happening here, basically. If you read chapter 3, Jesus has publicly demonstrated, he's gone public with who he is. By the way, that's a beautiful corollary of what baptism is about. Baptism is where you go public with your faith. So Jesus wasn't going public with his faith, and Jesus surely wasn't repenting of his sins. But what Jesus was doing is through water baptism, he was publicly making a statement. And the statement was essentially, remember what the, God the Father said? In God the Father, you have the, the, the Son, uh, uh, the Spirit coming down in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven saying, this is my, what, beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is where Jesus goes public. That's what baptism is about. That's the reason baptism is important. You say, well, I don't see anything about that in the text. You're right. I added that in. All right. <laughs> but it's true. So after the baptism, you have the temptation. And the temptation is essentially Satan saying, so you're the son of God. Let's see the evidence. It, You'll note that at the beginning it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And so this is not God out of control. This is not the Spirit cooperating with Satan. That's not the way it works. This is the divine ordaining power of the eternal God and His providence working through the evil choices that His creatures make, including Satan. But this is what we're going to find is in the temptation. This is Satan basically saying, prove it. You've just gone through this baptism where it's supposedly the voice of God in heaven says, you are the beloved, my beloved son. Prove it. And let me remind you, before we start reading, let me remind you that like Eve at the time of her temptation, Jesus had no inherent sin. There was no inherent internal ground for Satan to latch onto. That is significantly different than you and me. And we'll get there before we're through. We'll have to look at that. But I just remind you that in, the, in a similar way, it's not the same way, but in a similar way that Eve was innocent, Jesus was also pure and holy. So there were no internal drives to immorality within Jesus in his humanity. His humanity was truly human, but unfallen and perfect. Just remember that. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4. 
Uh, look with me, first of all, in verses 2 through 4, because here's what we, we find. The first temptation is the evil one says, meet your physical need. Does that sound familiar? Meet your physical need. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's a seemingly reasonable suggestion. Right? I mean, hunger is just a fact of humanity. It's a fact of, of living in a, in, in a status where we are weak and, and we have needs in our body. We have needs as a result of living in this creation. And so this seems like a reasonable suggestion. That's always, listen here, that's always how deception starts. It always starts with reasonable suggestion, with half measures. Turn these stones into bread. Meet your physical need. Verse 4. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, essentially what the tempter comes and says to him, think about it, is, Why would your father do this to you? I mean, why did he put you in this circumstance? It's no mistake that Matthew says Jesus was led by the Spirit in a wilderness. So you're hungry, Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. What is Jesus' counter strategy? He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, let me read Deuteronomy 8.3 for you. I think it'll be on the screen. It says that he might make you known make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh, of the Lord. So how does Jesus cope? He was, and don't say about this, though he had no sin within him, he was literally, truly hungry. He was in a state of famished need. And yet his emphasis is this. God's word is more important than having my need. That's the first temptation. Meet your physical need. And it sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Uh, look at the second one that Matthew reports. It's in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, now catch the reason here. This was a promise of the Messiah's deliverance. And Satan knows the Bible. And so this is from the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So the implication is this. You're the Messiah. So prove you're the Messiah. Cast yourself off the corner of the temple, the highest point, the pinnacle of the temple. Cast yourself off, and, and surely the angels will deliver you if you're Messiah. Now this is a, a questionable suggestion. Now, all other things being equal, you can look at this and you can say, yeah, what would be the harm in that? It's a promise that God made. So if God made that promise about Messiah, then that would be a demonstration that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Jesus said to him, verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, when Satan quotes the scripture, he leaves out some of if you go look at Psalm 91 and this promise to Messiah, it, it specifically says, He will bear you up in all your ways. So you don't get to pick and choose. You want to receive that promise. It was Messiah. 
that Satan is selective in his use of Scripture, isn't he? And Jesus here quotes in saying that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting what we know is Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And what happened at Massah? Do you remember? That was where the people grumbled because they didn't have water and they didn't believe that their God who had led them this far would provide the water. So essentially, once again, it was a question, can we count on our God? Where is God in our trouble? Can he be counted on? Can we wait on him? And Satan says, you think you're the Messiah? You're the Son of God? Well, prove it. And Jesus says, I can wait on the Father. Don't tempt the Father. Then we move from what seems to me to be a reasonable suggestion about turning stones into bread. And this questionable suggestion about showing your messiahship to a scandalous suggestion. Because basically Satan says, worship me. It's a shocking criminal proposal. I'll pick it up in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus basically is fed up. You have to know the Greek to catch that. But anyway, he's, he's fed up. <laughs> he says in verse 10, Be God, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Counter strategy here is once again the word of God. Every step, Jesus, the Holy One, Response with the word. There's irony there. Jesus, the word, responds with the word. And here Satan is seeking what he's always been after. He says, just worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. Evidently, Satan's first fall was what? He wanted to be what? He wanted to be equal with God. So here he suggests that Jesus as Messiah worships him. It's what he's always been after, wanting what only belongs to God. Oh, file that away. Think about it. And Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And this parallels Satan's direct lie to Eve. Suggestion that to be like God, you disobey God. To achieve God's will, you ignore his fundamental commands. And we look at that and we think, how can anyone be so foolish as to believe that? But you see, once you've yielded to these other questions and suggestions, it is a slippery slope. Jesus stops it with the word. That's his counter strategy every single step. And what's the outcome? Look down to verse 11. Do you see it? Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let me just point out quickly that in resisting the evil one, Jesus ultimately receives all of the blessings the Satan offered. <clears throat> the angels came and met his needs. He did fulfill the will of the Father perfectly. And ultimately, Ultimately, he 
will receive all worship, not you. Now again, there's some interesting parallels here. But one of the things we have to acknowledge is that for the Lord Jesus and also for Adam and Eve in their original state, the tempter stood outside them. There was no internal ground for the tempter to grab onto. For us, for us, sin has residence within us. In fact, there's this twisted desire for what is forbidden. It's, it's a cliche, right? Wet paint, do not touch. What do you want to do? I think of it often when I'm, when I'm driving through a school zone and I know I'm not supposed to use my cell phone and I have all kinds of texts that I need to send and phone calls that pop into my mind when it's forbidden. There's an appeal to forbiddenness. It was not in Eve and Adam originally and it surely was never in Jesus, but we are born with it. More on that next week. We are born with it. For them, all of this is an anomaly. But for us, we cannot escape it. We are always exposed. For those of us who are in Christ, we still struggle with this, what the Bible calls the flesh. We still drag our flesh around, our sinfulness. If you're outside of Christ, you are governed and enslaved to your sin. We are never out of temptation's reach. We are always exposed. And so the question is this, does that mean we're hopeless? No. In fact, there is great hope. But we need to consider and recognize Satan's strategies with us. And so that's my third point this morning. After we've looked at Satan's success with Eve and his failure with Jesus, let me finish by looking at the tempter's strategy with us. And to do that, we need to turn to the book of 1 John in the New Testament. So please turn there, 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The tempter's strategy with us. There we read this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. I'm in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, all that is in the world. And when it's talking about the world in this context, it's not talking about the people of the world. The Bible tells us that God loves the people of the world. But this is the world system. This is, this is the, the, the system that we live in, that we're born in, that we exist in, that is going to be here until Jesus comes back and sets things right. And that's the system that we're not to love because all of these things in the world, and they're listed, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, verse 16, are not from the Father, but all of this is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now let's unpack for just a minute what this strategy looks like in our lives. Desires of the flesh, all that is in the world. Desires of the flesh. This is our sinfulness. This is the the hunger and thirst. Can I use that as a metaphor? This is the hunger and thirst for what we think we want and need right now. So it can be, for example, gluttony. It can be drunkenness. And of course, especially in our day and age, we think of sexual temptation. 
sexual pleasure, sexual release, sexual pursuit. These are the desires of the flesh. And we think and we say that we need these. How often have you heard that? That sex is just another appetite. You have an appetite for food, you have an appetite for sex. And so there shouldn't be any guilt, there shouldn't be any standards, there shouldn't be any rules. This is the philosophy of, watch this, the world. It's the world system that says this. But that's Satan's strategy with us. Because we all, all are still in our bodies, and in our bodies we still reside not only with our physical bodies, but also with this entity called the flesh. And therefore within us all there is this desire from time to time, the desire that can be excited, and it can be sinful when it's excited, because we have something that we want that's illegitimate. And again, if you look at the, what are called the sin lists in the New Testament, the places where various sins are listed, these are things like sexual immorality and gluttonous, gluttony excuse me, and drunkenness. But then we've got, look at it, you've got the desires of the eyes. Now, what's the difference between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes? The desires of the eyes, these seem to be more intangible. I, I still want to use the, the analogy of hunger and thirst, but this is hungering and thirst for what we want to possess. This is, years ago I used to talk to my kids, when, uh, both my boys, when we would, we would go to the mall or we would go shopping or go to Target back in the good days when we would go to Target. <laughs> and, and, and they would ask for everything. I mean, you know how kids are. I need that, need that, need that, need that. God, I need that, right? And I would say to them, I would say, God, it's a trap. It's a trap. Every time we come, it's a trap. And so they got to where they would say that. They'd say, you could go up through the mall and they'd say, Dad, I can feel the trap. It's the trap. <laughs> this is the, the appeal of stuff materialism, and then what happens is envy when others have what you don't, and then coveting what others have, covetousness, which the Bible says is like idolatry, and then greed because you find that you have things, and, and what does that do? The, the famous quote, J. Paul Getty, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he says, just a little more. Isn't that true? So greed and, and then anger that comes when you don't get what you want and then dissensions with other, others when you interact with others in the friction. These are the desires of the eyes because the eyes are, are a gateway into the soul and the soul, we experience in our soul the things we really want. And so the desires of the flesh seem to be the immediate satisfaction of fleshly physical desires. The desires of the eyes seem to be this more insubstantial, this more intangible attitude that says, what do I really want? What are the things I want? And why can't I have them? And why do others have the things that I want? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes. By the way, every now and then preaching the way we preach, people say, well, you know, it's not very practical. It's not very relevant. I hope you feel this is relevant today. I mean, this is where we live, right? This is what we struggle with. 
Did you struggle with desires of the flesh this week? Do you struggle with desires of the eyes? And then there's this unusual term. I think of the King James that used to translate it the boastful pride of life. The pride of life. And you know what this is? It's easier to understand today than it was when I was a child. The, the, the pride of life, these are issues of identity. This is defining my own existence, how we understand ourselves, how we define ourselves. And it ends up, the pride of life ends up an insistence on being our own creator. I'll determine my gender. I'll determine what marriage looks like. I'll determine who I'm married to or who I stay married to. I'll determine this. I'll determine that. I'll determine how much sexual pleasure I'll pursue because after all, I have a right to define my own existence. This is the pride of life. I want to be in control. I want to be exalted. I want to be on my own. I want what I want. The pride of life. And I would show you that with Eve, all of her temptations, and perhaps with two of Jesus' three temptations, there is no outright immorality involved. That's the reason the deception is so real. There's very little big sin here in our text. In Genesis 3 or in Matthew 4, other than obviously, worship me, Satan says. And in fact, this thing of the pride of life, it can easily be psychologized or spiritualized into looking very upright and very moral. But this is the tempter's strategy. Because look back at the verse. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of this is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away. And here you have a hint of not only the danger for us, but you have a hint also, we've seen it in Genesis already, haven't we? Of the folly of it. You will live eternally, one way or another, either in eternal life or in eternal death. So why would you give yourself over the fact that this world system is passing away, this world system cannot exist eternally, and you look at it and weigh it, and you say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to cast my lot with the world. And yet this is what each of us do. We do when we yield to the temptations that are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here's what all of this looks like from James chapter 1. This is a familiar text, right? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the temptation comes, and we cannot block temptation. How many times have you been told that? How many times across a discipleship table have you been told, you know, don't feel bad about temptation. Temptation's going to come. Yes, that's true. You can't stop temptation. But the moment in your desire you yield to that temptation, in your desire... You've already sinned. James saying that desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. 
He's just saying that the desire, as soon as you yield to it, you're on the path. Inordinate, ungodly desire is always sin. It's choosing in your heart to worship and desire something apart from God's will, apart from God's glory. And the danger of inordinate desires is once you consider them and once you toy with them, once you embrace them, once you fantasize over them, whatever they are, sins of the flesh or sins of the eyes or the pride of life, once you give yourself over to toying with that in your heart, in your mind, you're already on the way. And as we said already, the course of sin is downhill. So we're hampered by this indwelling sin, this flesh already. Where does this leave us? Because the temptation's going to come and there's a foothold within all of us. It's our flesh. So what hope is there? You know, we sing that hymn from time to time. A mighty fortress. Where the end of the first verse says, and talking about the evil one, it says that on earth is not his equal. That's the reason you can never stop singing a mighty fortress with the first verse. Because it's talking about the evil one. And the last line says, on earth is not his equal. But the rest of him exalts the one of his power. And most of us know that in 1 John, we we read the words that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So in the handful of minutes I have left, let me show you what God promises to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Stop right there. So everything you need, everything you need, God has provided. Everything you need to fight the desires of the flesh, to resist the desires of the eyes, to fight against the pride of life, God has already provided. God sets us up. He set Adam and Eve up. They chose to go their own way. He sets us up. Because all of these things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him, He's granted us His precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Watch this. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's what this passage is about. Escaping sinful desire. You're not a slave anymore, Romans 6 says. Because God has set you up. He has given you the resources that you need. These great and precious promises. The the kind of promises that we celebrate at his table this morning. They are ours. Let me list them for you. There are at least five. The first is the eternal word of God. He's given us the Bible. And we have access to the Bible in ways that past generations could never have dreamed We have the eternal word of God. God is setting us up to succeed. We also have the indwelling Holy Spirit in each of us. The New Testament says that when you came to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelled you, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, sealed you and indwelt you. So the Holy Spirit lives within you. So not only do you have your flesh, uh, these are not equals, this is not the force, the good side, the bad side, equally warring with each other, 
your sinful flesh is, is left over from your guilt and your sin, but the Holy Spirit is living inside you. So you have the Word of God and you have the Holy Spirit within you. And then the New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit empowers the church. And so you don't do this on your own. You have the Word of God and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, but one of the ways the Holy Spirit works in your life is through the gathering of His people. And so the Holy Spirit, especially in Acts 2, empowered the church and there are gifts to the church and we've studied those gifts and we are to serve one another, helping one another resist the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And so you have the Word of God and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit and you have the empowering Holy Spirit in the church, but you also still have this gift that Satan has perverted from the beginning, you've got your mind. And your mind is affected by sinfulness, but it's still reflective of the image of God. And so you can use your reason, and you can think, and you can read, and you can study, and you can listen to one another, and you can encourage one another, and you can read the Word of God and find His instruction there. God's given you reason. He's given you the ability to think. So you have the Word of God, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within the church, you've got your reason, and then finally, you've got the gospel. You've got the gospel. Because at the end of the day, we all had yielded already, and if we're honest about it, we still struggle every single day. But the promise is that God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And this is good news. It's good news that empowers us. It's good news that gives us reason for holiness. It's good news that gives us a ground of our acceptance so that we're not worried about being cast out by the Father because we don't perform, but rather we're eager to please Him because He's a loving Father who sent His Son to live, to die, and to conquer death and resurrection. The eternal Word of God, the indwelling Spirit, the empowering Spirit in the church, our reason and also the gospel. And this gives us the ability, it equips us to say day by day with heartfelt eagerness to say what Eve should have said, to say what Adam should have said, to say what Jesus did say. Indeed, to say, God, show me your will. And for those of us who are sinners, we say it this way. Jesus would not have said it this way. But for those of us who are sinners, we say, indeed, you are God and I am not. You are God and I am not. This is your takeaway today. Every day, every moment, every choice. Who is your Lord? Desires of the flesh? Who is your Lord? Desires of the eyes? Who is your Lord? The pride of life? Who is your Lord? Let's pray together. Father, these are not easy issues. We struggle. We're in what your word calls a warfare. Lord, we're reminded that in the New Testament, the strategies of the evil one are called fiery darts, invoking an offense, an attack by an opposing force. 
that indeed we desire not to be outwitted by the evil one, we don't want to be ignorant of his devices, of his strategies. And so remind us this morning of the glory of the gospel and how you have set us up. You have saved us by your grace. We still have the reason with which you created us. You've put us in the church that we might, through the Holy Spirit, minister to one another. You've indwelled us through your spirit. Your spirit himself is within us. And you've given us your holy and errant word. Father, these are more than sufficient resources to stand against the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. Father, make us holy people. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.